The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Our copy of God's Word to Luke 24, verse events. Just like we tracked with Luke's account back in the incarnation at Christmas, we've been tracking with his account uh, last week at his triumphal entry. Friday through Good Friday, we uh, read those events, and now we come to this resurrection event. And you know what I love about the Lord and his kindness, the Lord and his wisdom and his brilliance, is how he uses each gospel author to highlight different aspects or perspectives of the events. Even though they are describing the same event, he uses their unique unique perspective to draw out uh, certain truths and certain things that we should know about this event. And in, in Luke's account, he will draw out for us the reliability or the trustworthiness of God's word. See, uh, Easter weekend and the events that we remember at Holy Week are our annual reminder, our annual t- uh, uh, opportunity to uh, answer this question. Will we take God at his word or not? His word. And much has been written over the years by uh, scholars, both biblical and not, uh, examining the evidence of Jesus' death and resurrection. And, And for good reason, right? Everything hinges on these events. The very claims of Christianity, of our faith, uh, hinge on the trustworthiness of what Christ said and what Christ did. This is his resurrection is really what makes Jesus unique. For we all go and face death, but Jesus, as the one who has risen from the dead, makes him unlike any other person to walk this globe. And what has been found, as you do your own research, we're not going to examine it necessarily this morning, but what has been found in every examination is that the evidence points to that Jesus did, in fact, rise. There is no reliable evidence for his body being stolen or people lying about it or the eyewitnesses who are recording it missing some important details. However, it is not the evidence here that convinced those who first came to the tomb that Jesus was alive. Listen to what this commentator uh, says about this. It was not the evidence of their own eyes, an empty tomb, or even the words of angels that convinced them. Rather, it was the memory of the word that Jesus taught and now confirmed by his resurrection that brought them to realize that he had risen End quote. See, here's what this at the center of our passage today that I'm going to read for us in just a moment. But if you're taking notes, write this down. Here's what's at the center. Jesus, the greater Savior, has risen from the dead just as he said he would. That last uh, phrase there, just as he said he would, is the thrust or the center of our passage. And so let me read it, and I think you'll see it in the text. Join me in your Bible after you're done writing that point down. Join me in your Bible. I'm going to read Luke 24, 1 through 12, and set the table for us. It says this, But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus, while they were perplexed about this, behold, 
Two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. As they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day, rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. This is God's word for God's people. Do you see what's at the center of the text there? See, at the end of verse 5 through uh, verse 8 are really the center of the passage around which the rest of the narrative revolves. Think of it as the bullseye there at the end of chapter, or verse 5 through verse 8. They're at the center, and the a- actions of everybody else uh, revolve around the center here. And in these verses, it is the angel that is speaking. Here's just a, a note for you as you're studying your Bible. As, uh, you want to be good Bible students. You want to employ good hermeneutical principles here. Whenever you're trying to determine the meaning of a passage, uh, whenever God speaks or one of his appointed messengers, listen up. Right? Whenever it is God who is speaking, especially in a dialogue or in a story like this, if it is God or one of his messengers, in other words, the angels here, when they are listening or when they are speaking, we listen up. That's where we'll find the meaning and the significance before it is God's word that we want to hear, is it not? It is, it is, it is, it is. So look at verse 5 here. Is he being facetious, right? An angel begins to speak to the women who have come, and he says, Why do you seek the living among the dead? Now, where are the ladies? At the tomb, right? In a cemetery, in a graveyard. And it almost like, what, what, what do you mean? Of course we're here to seek the dead. But then he makes this startling claim. He's not just being facetious, but he's asking a question to make this claim to them. He is not here, but has risen. And he makes the claim, and what does he point back to then? He points back to Jesus' own word. He says, remember, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee. And here's the thing, church, so much of following Jesus, even really just so much of our life, is just a lot of remembering, isn't it? Especially if we've grown up in the church, we've read through our Bible as believers. He has already given us everything we need to know. We may not fully comprehend or fully understand it, but he has given it. And as we walk through life, it is just recalling to mind what Jesus did, what Jesus said, how the Lord has instructed us in this life. That's really not any different than even in our job and training. It's remembering what we did. It's the same in athletics as we remember what we practiced. We remember what our coach told us, and it's just recalling to mind. And it is this that convinces the ladies this is the plan. They should have expected it because Jesus had told them multiple times that these things were going to come. Like, look at the passages. He says, here's the player. Here's the plan. Here's where he told them. Look in your Bibles now and turn back to Luke chapter 9, verse 21. 
You can keep your finger in 24 because we'll come back to it. But I want you to just see this. He says, here's, here's where he told them. They're remembering it. Go back, Luke 9, verse 21. And what's so interesting about this passage here, it is after Jesus has fed the 5,000. Done incredible miracles. Right before this is when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ of God. And on the tales of that confession, look at verse 21, Luke 9. And he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day rise. Be raised. He told them this. They didn't knew it. And right after it, then he tells them, hey, you're going to have to deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. It wasn't long after this. Ministry is continuing around Galilee. Go uh, just over a few verses. Chapter 9, verse 44. Or really at the end of verse 43. It says this. He tells them again. He's, he's tr- been transfigured before them. The glory of God has been seen by uh, Peter, James, and John. He's done many miracles. And look what it says. But while they were marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples. Like they're in awe. They are astonished by the miracles that Jesus was doing. And he says this, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. I could just, just like time out there for a second. You imagine being with Jesus. He's like, hey, get this in your thick skull. Right? Parents, you ever said that to your kids? I want you to remember this. Let this sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them so they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. I had no idea what he was talking about. Isn't this so true? Just as Jesus, we come to the Bible, we read some things, we say, okay, get it, sunk in my ears. I have no idea what that means. But out of fear, they don't ask for clarification. You ever have a question in a small group? You ever have a question about what is being preached or taught? Just ask. Just ask. Get help, right? It's okay. We're all learning. We're all growing. We're all humble. Because like, they're afraid to ask, and then what do they start arguing about in the next chapter? This is just like a freebie, or not the next chapter, but the next verse in verse 46, right? About who's the greatest. Like, how about just understand what Jesus is saying before you jockey for a position for power? But he told them that's the second time. It's the second time. Now go over to chapter 18. Verse 31, lots more ministry happens. They continue around. Lots of teaching happens. Jesus has been teaching in parables. His ministry in Galilee is about to come to an end. There in uh, chapter 18, he's had uh, many encounters with some uh, prominent people. In Luke 18, verse 31, he takes the 12. He says to them, see, we're going to come into Jerusalem here. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. How is that for a claim? Everything about the Christ, about me, will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what he said. 
three different times, three different evidences, three different uh, uh, times of teaching here. Jesus tells his disciples exactly what will happen when he enters into Jerusalem, that he will be killed and that he will rise again. This is why as we get to Luke 24, when the angel tells the women, remember what he told you. And could you just picture uh, being in their, their shoes, hearing these things and now seeing it with your very eyes. The tomb is empty. Now, we can't really be too hard on the disciples, on the women here, right? Because it's really hard to really comprehend these things and what he's talking about. And after seeing all these miracles and things, uh, and, and it, like, we can just take a chill pill, right? But here's the thing about the Lord. Here's the thing about our faith this morning. Everything he says can be trusted. At the center of this passage, what is it that convinces them that Christ has risen from the dead, that the resurrection is a real event, is, is really this boils down to this, that everything the Lord says can be trusted. If you believe that, write that down. Look at your neighbor, tell him everything he says can be trusted. Do you believe that this morning, church? See, everything he does is good. Why? Because he's holy. Everything uh, he, 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 he says in his word is as good as done. Why? Because he's faithful. Just think back in, in, in the history of our Old Testament. Think back to the Exodus events. Israel is there and they are enslaved uh, to the Egyptian. And God hears the cries of the people of Israel. And he commissions Moses to lead them out, those two to three million people, out of their slavery through the great and grievous judgments, through 40 years in the wilderness, into the promised land that he told them they would occupy years before. That he would lead them into a land of milk and honey. And as they get into then the book of Joshua... They begin to occupy the land and conquer God's enemies as they take it over. Look what it is said at the end of Joshua when all of these things that God had promised years before. Joshua 21, 45, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Everything God says can be trusted, church. Look what this proverb says, Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6. Every word of God proves true. Can you give an amen to that? He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you, and you be found a liar. See, everything God says can be trusted, and the resurrection is a defining moment in God proving the trustworthiness or the reliability of his word. See, God is who he says he is, and he can be trusted as he says. Why? Because of what has already been proven and accomplished. Jesus is the great king, but it is our great sin that separated us from him. So the great king becomes a greater savior, living, dying, and rising again to make us his own, just as was prophesied in the Old Testament and just as said by Jesus himself. And so if all this is at the center, the reliability of God, look then what happens when we forget this is what is revolving around the center. When we forget, we become perplexed, like it says in verse 4. However, when we remember the resurrection, the resurrection, here's your first point, gives assurance to our uncertainty. If God can be trusted, as we've uh, posited here, and as the scripture is teaching us here, then the resurrection, it will prove for us, and it, it shows us that it gives us assurance when we are uncertain, or when we are perplexed, or when we don't know what to do. 
Come back to Luke 24, and let's look at the details of verse 1 here. It's Sunday. It's early morning, right? The first day of the week, early dawn, and they go to the tomb. The they are the women, the women who are mentioned later and who are referred to uh, just back a few verses in chapter 23. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. They'd been with him all along the way. They saw the resurrection, it, or the, the crucifixion rather. They saw him laid in the tomb. Then they go back home to prepare the spices, the ointments. But then the next day is Sabbath, so they couldn't do anything. And so now it's the first day of the week. And so here they are with those spices. See, they didn't embalm uh, people in those days. They were just laid in the tomb, and so the spices were there really as like a potpourri to mask the smell of the decomposition. And they get there, and what do they find? That the stone has been rolled away. In Mark's account of the events, he tells us that they were, they were debating among them, and they uh, were uh, unable to move it. And now they get there, and it's moved, and they look in, and the body is gone. And verse says they're perplexed or confused or uncertain. They don't know what to do. This was not according to the plan. They were trying to plan how to move the stone, and God had already taken care of that. And now look what happens. These two men, what it says, Standing there in dazzling apparel. Now, these aren't like two slick-haired game show hosts with uh, you know, sparkling suits and shiny shoes or anything. Who are they? They're angels. God's messengers. God's appointed ones who would come to bear witness to his resurrection. Two are present as the witnesses, but only one speaks, and he has a message. He is delivering the good news that begins with, Remember... Remember what he told you he would do. And at the very remembrance of it, it calms their confusion. And this is pretty real life, isn't it? For when we forget God's word, when we forget that God is who he says he is, when we forget who he is and his attributes, that he is strong and powerful and trustworthy, it is then that we get confused and perplexed. For we begin to think in our own soul like, well, where is God in all of this? Well, what do I do now? As if God went missing or his word wasn't sufficient for you. But you know what? Jesus knew that we would forget. He knew that we would forget. And look what he told his disciples in John 14. uh, in, In light of the resurrection, just listen to these. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, and here's the linchpin, because I live, you also will live. What is he doing here? Embedding in the promise and the certainty of the resurrection is our help. Embedded here because Christ is living. He will be alive. We too will live. We too have the hope of a resurrection, an eternal life that we fear not death. Embedded here in the certainty of the resurrection is our help. When we ask the question, well, what do we do? Well, if we love the Lord, we keep his commandments. We follow after him, not begrudgingly, Not as these things that, oh, what we don't get to do, but because he loves us, he tells us the way that we should go. The way that brings glory to him and is for our good and embedded in it is our help in his presence. For when we ask the question, well, where is God? 
Who does he give to help us? Though Christ has left and is seated at the right hand of the Father now, who dwells in us now, church? Holy Spirit, the one who came, the one who we know, even as he's promising it here, what happens at Pentecost after Jesus rises and he ascends into heaven, what happens? Who comes? The Holy Spirit in the church is born. And so see, even in our perplexity, even in our uncertainty, God gives assurance as we know and we, we see the resurrection is sure and guaranteed. So too we as we live our life, even when we are perplexed. But see, something else can happen when we forget. For they move not just to perplexity, but they move to fear. Fear sets in. However, when we remember, when we remember the resurrection, it can calm our fears. Look at verse 5 for a second. The angels show up. They're frightened. The women are frightened, and they hit the deck. See that? They were frightened. They bowed their faces to the ground. And the men then, the angel starts speaking And you know what? This is what happens repeatedly, just like as a little commercial break here. Anytime when humans encounter angels, they're afraid. Don't just be aware of anybody who's like, oh, I you know, this angel was speaking to me or I saw these angels and all that. No, when angels show up in the Bible, people are afraid and they 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 bow down. exactly what they do here. They're afraid. They don't know these are God's messengers. And so I don't really want to oversimplify things, but in our fear here, in our fear is when we need to hit the truth that God is the great king. Christ is the great king, but our great sins separated us from him. So the great king becomes a what? A greater savior, living, dying, and rising again to make us his own. And when we take our eyes off the simplicity, but the, uh, but the brilliance of these gospel truths is when things go awry. When we begin to fear things that we shouldn't, or we begin to worship things that we shouldn't, bowing down before them. And so the gospel gives clarity to life so that we can walk in faith. Just like a pair of glasses. If I were to take off my glasses, I'm a pretty blind guy. And, and it, 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 if I were to try to live life and drive and do all the things, it would be a fearful experience for myself and for everybody. But with them on, I have clarity. I can walk in peace and confidence because I can see what is around me. As we remember the certainty of the resurrection, what Christ said, that his words can be trusted. It calms our fears. Listen to this uh, uh, story from Timothy Paul Jones in the book Proof about forgetting who we are and fearing the worst created a memorable vacation for his family. Listen to this story. He says this, I never dreamed that taking a child to Disney World could be so difficult. He He needs to have different expectations, I think. Or that such a trip could teach me so much about God's outrageous grace. Our middle daughter had been previously adopted by another family. I am sure this couple had the best of intentions, but they never quite integrated the adopted child into their family of biological children. After a couple of rough years, they dissolved the adoption, and we ended up welcoming an eight-year-old girl into our home. For one reason or another, whenever our daughter's previous family vacationed at Disney World, They took their biological children with them, but they left their adopted daughter with a family friend. Usually, at least in the child's mind, this happened because she did something wrong that precluded her presence on the trip. 
And so by the time we adopted our daughter, she had seen many pictures of Disney World and she had heard about the rides and the characters and the parades. But when it came to passing through the gates of the Magic Kingdom, she had always been the one left on the outside. Once I found out about this history, I made plans to take her to Disney World the next time a speaking engagement took our family to the southeastern U.S. I thought I had mastered the Disney World drill. I knew from previous experiences that the prospect of seeing cast members in freakishly oversized mouse and duck costumes somehow turns children into squirming bundles of emotional instability. What I didn't expect was that the prospect of visiting this dream world would produce a stream of downright devilish behavior in our newest daughter. In the month leading up to our trip to the Magic Kingdom, she stole food when a simple request would have gained her a snack. She lied when it would have been easier to tell the truth. She whispered insults that were carefully crafted to hurt her older sister as deeply as possible. And as the days on the calendar moved closer to the trip, her mutinies multiplied. A couple of days before our family headed to Florida, I pulled our daughter into my lap to talk about her latest escapade. I know what you're going to do, she stated flatly. You're not going to take me to Disney World, are you? The thought hadn't actually crossed my mind. But her downward downward spiral suddenly started to make some sense. She knew she couldn't earn her way into the Magic Kingdom. She had tried and failed that test several times before. So she was living in a way that placed her as far as possible from the most magical place on earth. In retrospect, I'm embarrassed to admit that. In that moment, I was tempted to turn her fear to my own advantage. The easiest response would have been, well, if you don't start behaving better, you're right. We won't take you. But by God's grace, I didn't. Instead, I asked her, is this trip something we're doing as a family? She nodded, brown eyes wide and tear-rimmed. Are you part of this family? She nodded again. Then you're going with us. Sure, there may be some consequences to help you remember what's right and what's wrong, but you're part of our family, and we're not leaving you behind. I'd like to say that her behaviors grew better after that moment. They didn't. Her choices pretty much spiraled out of control at every hotel and rest stop all the way to Lake Buena Vista. Still we, needed to, or still, we headed to Disney World on the day we had promised, and it was a typical Disney day. Overpriced tickets, overpriced meals, and lots of lines mingled with just enough manufactured magic to consider maybe going again someday. In our hotel room that evening, a very different child emerged. She was exhausted, pensive, and a little weepy at times, but her month-long facade of rebellion had faded. When bedtime rolled around, I prayed with her, held her, and asked, So how was your first day at Disney World? She closed her eyes and snuggled down into her stuffed unicorn. After a few moments, she opened her eyes ever so slightly. Daddy, she said, I finally got to go to Disney World, but it wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. It wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. That's the message of outrageous grace. That's the message of a trustworthy father. That's a message that calms our fears. Quote goes on, outrageous grace isn't a favor you can achieve by being good. It's the gift you receive by being God's. Outrageous grace is God's goodness that comes looking for you when you have nothing but a middle finger flipped in the face of God to offer in return. 
It's a farmer paying a full day's wages to a crew of deadbeat day laborers with only a single hour punched on their time cards with her when she turns out to be not so great. It's the insanity of a shepherd who puts 99 sheep at risk to rescue the single lamb that's too stupid to stay with the flock. It's the love of a father who hands over his finest rings and robes to a young man who has squandered his inheritance on drunken binges with his fair-weather friends. It's God's choice to save a slave trader, knowing full well that it would take a decade for this man to recognize the wretchedness of his ways, end quote. Who was that man? The slave trader, knowing full well who would take a decade. It's that slave trader, John Newton, who wrote the song that we all love to sing, Amazing Grace, who lived a wretched life. And who at the end of his life, after God had saved him and opened his eyes to the outrageous grace of God, he said this quote, Although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. It is even that in his life and so many others when we remember what this great Savior did and said that our fears are calmed. What is it that you fear this morning? That God won't answer your prayer? Your kids won't turn to Christ? The market will crash? That you'll remain single forever? That you won't recover from this diagnosis? Well, don't lose sight that though your control of those outcomes is beyond you, we have this certainty in Christ's resurrection and his hope that far outweighs any fears that we may have now. See, it is the hope of the gospel. It is the hope that awaits us, this resurrection that is also ours, that Christ won for us, that uh, far outweighs any suffering, any fear that we might have. Listen to what Paul says in, in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. He says, For I consider, meaning I count it as good as done, I believe these things with resolution, that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. What is the glory that he's referring to? The glory, the hope of resurrection. And it's this hope, this grace, this salvation, born out of the proof of the resurrection. Christ is who he says he is and will do exactly what he says he will do that gives us hope and the resurrection then here's our final point it motivates our mission it motivates us to continue on even in the perplexity of life even in the fear of life it is the resurrection what we remember and see what Christ has done here that motivates us it says in verse 8 they remembered his words and they returned from the tomb and they told all these things to the 11 and all the rest Anyone that they would come in contact to, anyone that, these, that would listen to these women, first to them, then to the rest. And see, here's the thing. Jesus' earthly life, then his criminal treatment, it's like, it's like picture this, like a beach ball being suppressed in the water as his glory was wrapped up in it and pressed down into the water. There, there is DDD wrapped up in that human shell then pushed under. He was buried and that grave could not hold him and he burst forth from the grave. Same way as the ladies learn of his resurrection, they too burst forth from the tomb to deliver the message. And I love it that it's these women who are the first witnesses and messengers of the resurrected Christ. For it is these women just doing what God had called them to, the, the very simple ministry of presence, often overlooked but ever so powerful. 
a ministry that was really stripped from us over the last few years as things were closed, access to people in their time of need has been taken away from us. And yet here God using and elevating these ladies, just doing the very simple thing, the ministry of presence, being with Christ in his most dire moments of need. There it is, death. There is burial now coming and God honoring them as he's at this resurrection. Don't diminish, church, just what your very presence, even when you have no words to say, but what your presence can do in the most dire of needs with God's people. But it's these women who then bring the message, who announce Christ is risen the very first ones to say the words that we say every Easter. He is risen here. The first human messengers. And it comes with contrasting responses, doesn't it? Verse 11 and verse 12. These are real life, right? We announce the gospel. Christ is alive. And some, like you see in verse 11, reject the resurrection as an idle tale. Ah, it's just fairy tales. Good story. There's, you know, if it helps people feel good about themselves, that's great. But it's not for me. And others, like in verse 12, marvel at what had happened, marveling in worship. And so the question is there for us this morning, how do we respond to these events? Well, we reject it as an idle tale, good for others, but not good for me. Good, I need some more proof. Or will I take God at his word, believing that he is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do Look at what it says in Romans 10. Very simple. Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. So simple. So simple to believe. So simple to believe that Christ died and rose again and has a, 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 a newness of life for you. Not an easy life for sure. But the way to following him is so simple to believe. And for we who are saved, so simple to communicate. So simple to communicate. Will we take God at his word this morning that he will be with you as you do these things, as you go and make disciples in his promise, I will be with you. Will you trust him this morning? Will you take him at his word to save you? Why? Because everything he says can be trusted. Do you believe that this morning, church? Everything he says can be trusted. Thank you, Jesus. Would you pray with me? And then we'll tell him thank you as we sing some more. God in heaven, here we are. Here we are before you, so grateful. And yet with this question uh, lingering uh, before us, will we take you at your word? Lord, if you by your spirit are doing this work in somebody's heart even now, would this be the moment of their salvation? Would you come, oh God, and cause them to surrender, to submit their life, that you would apply Christ's work on their behalf and they would be saved? Just praying a simple prayer of God, we love you. I am a great sinner, but Christ, I embrace that you are a great Savior. You are my Savior. You rose so that I could have eternal life with you.
Father, would you teach us to be thankful today? Would you give us an exceeding joy in these things, knowing that you can be trusted, even in the perplexities of life, even in the fears of life, even as in the purposes of life, as you uh, compel us to announce this message. We do so even now with great joy. We sing to you because you're worthy. We worship you because you are the only one worthy to be worshiped. So we bring you these praises now. Lift our voices and pray these things in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen.